Well, we have come to the end of one sermon series, which means we naturally begin up another one. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please open it to the book of John. As always, when we stop a sermon series, we've got to start a new one up. And so we've always got to figure out what's going to happen next. And uh, there's a couple of reasons why we decided to start the book of John. Um, first is my growing conviction uh, in number of different ways that the Gospels really should be the home and the center of what we do as a church. Uh, the, the Old Testament continually and ever-presently looks forward to the time of Jesus. They are looking forward to the redemption that Jesus would provide for them. They are looking forward to the final kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated. They are looking forward to all of the promises being found in Christ. And so once Christ has been given to them, that is their focus, and they are pointed forward on that. The stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John lay out for us are the things that Israel was always waiting for and the Old Testament was always pointing toward. But the New Testament then does sort of the opposite. It, it, it gravitationally looks back at the Gospels and begins to explain implications of the Gospel. And so because of that, because the Old Testament's always looking forward to the Gospels and the New Testament's always looking backwards on the life of Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his miracles, his life and death. It is appropriate for us to always keep a foot in the Gospels. And so from now on, I think we're going to always have a foot in the Gospels. And this doesn't mean that for the next 50 years, I'm just going to preach through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's not what we're going to be doing. And given that I'm only doing one verse, you might not even think that I can get through all of that in 50 years. We will, I promise. No, we're not trying to only stay in the Gospels. As this is our home, we will, of course, naturally take vacations. And so we are going to take vacations in Proverbs, and we'll take vacations in Isaiah. We will take vacations in Paul and in Timothy, and we will take vacations in Revelation. We will be all over the place, but we will always find our home back in the Gospels. That doesn't really explain why we're picking John. John is being picked because of very practical reasons. Not too long before I came, I believe it was maybe a year or so before I came, I'm coming up on my two-year anniversary here, uh, Pastor John, uh, who was here before, had preached through Luke, and many of you were here for those sermons, so I didn't feel like it would be a good idea to go back over that, and Mark was actually covered in a community group here. Some of that is well before many of you came, but nevertheless, for those who are here for those things, I don't want to go over those again. And so John was sort of the natural choice, and so we find ourselves face-to-face -face with the gospel according to John. All we're trying to do today is set up an introduction to the nature and the purpose of John's writing, which is distinct and interesting, and I think that it will be an immense amount of not only fun but blessing for us as we go to hear this word from God. So if we would open your Bibles, prepare yourselves for a lot of reading as we read one verse from the book of John, which you guys probably have memorized anyway. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is indeed the Word of our God. First, as we introduce the purpose and the nature of this book, we're going to ask three fairly simple questions. One, what difference does John make? What difference does John make? We have four Gospels. Why do we need John? If you were somebody who was introduced to the Bible for the very first time and you didn't know anything about it and somebody came to you and handed you one of those Gideon Bibles that's just the New Testament and the book of Psalms and you don't know anything about the Bible so you pick it up and you start to read it where you begin reading any book, 
in the beginning, and you open to the book of Matthew, and you read through Matthew, and you say, okay, well, that was Matthew. Good. Interesting stuff. I learned a lot about Jesus in there. And then you say, okay, well, what's this next thing? This next thing is Mark. And you begin to read in Mark, and you certainly realize very suddenly that Mark, if you're, if you're careful, he, he sounds a little different than Matthew, but in general, he sounds a lot like Matthew. As a matter of fact, you're, you're hearing some of the exact same statements over again. And you say, okay, well, maybe that was just a, a weird thing. And then you open to Luke, and Luke sounds different at first, but then the same sort of pattern emerges, the same sort of picture of Jesus. Jesus is a guy who walks around, and he heals a lot of people, sometimes on the Sabbath, and gets in controversies. But he's, he's healing people left and right, many miracles of healings. When he teaches, there are these short, pithy, aphoristic sort of teachings that they're punchy. They, they come to you. They're easy to memorize. Even in the longer spans of teaching that the Bible presents, like the Sermon on the Mount, that sermon is still filled with really good one-liners that are very easy to memorize. When he does teach in longer passages, he teaches parables. They all have these sort of nice moral understandings to them and how we are to be virtuous people. And he does a lot of exorcisms. He, he is casting out demons left and right. He's casting out demons from pigs. He's casting out demons from people. He's, he's casting out demons. But then you open to the book of John and you hear on the top, you read the gospel according to John. And you're starting to wonder if there's a pattern to everything. And you say, this is going to be just another one of the same stories, tweaked, a little bit different, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you're a, a careful reader, you'd realize that they have different interests and different viewpoints on things. You might be thinking, this is the same kind of stuff. But the minute you read that first verse, you realize this is not the same as the other three. That Sesame Street line is going through your head. One of these things is not like the other. And the Gospel of John is that one thing. It is not like the other Gospels. Why are there so many differences in John? John doesn't have a huge amount of healings by Jesus. He has a handful. He heals a Roman official's servant at the end of chapter 4. He heals a crippled man in chapter 5. He heals a blind man in chapter 9. He raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And there's not much more than that. There's not a huge amount of healings going on. Jesus isn't prone to short, pithy statements, but long, winding, river-type teachings that, that, that seem to swirl around a topic and come at it from a number of viewpoints, completely different than what we get in what we call the synoptics, the, the other three that sound so similar. There are frankly no parables at all. These great things that Jesus uses to teach in the other three, there's none found in the Gospel of John. If you wanted to think that maybe the end of John chapter 9 was a parable, I'll grant you that, but that's one in the entire book. Very, very small. And what's more, there are no exorcisms. Jesus isn't casting out demons anywhere. So different. Why? Why? What difference is John trying to make? There are basically three schools of thought on this. We will land on the last one, which is the one that the church has historically stood on. But people nowadays think that maybe John was independent of the other Gospels. That is, he was sitting around one day as an old man and said, you know, I feel like penning down the life of Jesus as I experienced it. And John, being an eyewitness to these things, he says it several times, he was an eyewitness to it. So he's going to sit down and he's going to pen it. But he doesn't know about Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so it just so happens that when not knowing about those three, he writes his down, it sounds a lot different. Now, there's good reasons why in the Gospel of John that we're going to talk about, 
John knew the other three. But historically, we don't even need to go there. It is inconceivable, and I know how to use that word, it is inconceivable that historically speaking, John wouldn't have heard of these Gospels. At the earliest dating of the Gospel of John, and probably the latest possible datings of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you've got at least 10 years, probably more like 20 years of a difference between the two. The Gospels were circulated really well, and John was a well-known apostle and a pillar in the early church. If these Gospels were being circulated, somebody would have gotten a copy and gone to John and say, John, what do you think of this? In 20 years, there's almost no way that John wouldn't have read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or seen bits and pieces of them. John knew that they existed, and he used them. Some then say that John rejected those Gospels. So he had them, but the reason why his gospel sounds so much different is because he didn't like them. And he said, well, that's trash, so I'm going to write something that's good. Now, automatically, you already know that this is not where we're going to land, so we've got another place to go. But there's a reason why we reject this, and it's a pretty common sense thing. So if somebody was writing a biography about your family, and they wrote a whole bunch of stories, little moments and snapshots of what you did in your life, and you read it and you're like, this is all hot garbage. None of this happened, and it certainly didn't happen this way. I'm going to write my own biography. Would you then take up your pen and write a biography, an autobiography about yourself and your family, and not address all of the errors in those books, but instead write about different stories altogether? Chances are no. If you were trying to discredit something else's work, you would take them to task. You'd say, remember how he said this? That's not how it happened. Yo, this is what happened. But John doesn't do that. If you picked up the Gospel of Mark, about 93% of Mark can be found in Matthew and Luke. There's only 7% that's actually Mark alone. John is exactly the opposite. John contains almost nothing that's found in the synoptics. 93%, 92% of John's writing is actually original, and that includes the scenes of his death and his resurrection. It is amazingly original work. John isn't writing to overturn them or to reject them, but rather, he is writing to supplement them and to deepen them. Johannine scholar Andreas Kostenberger says that John is trying to interpret, develop, and supplement the synoptics, the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John knows what they've written, and he is trying to address holes in what they've written. Not holes because they're insufficient, but holes because any writing of the work and the life of Jesus Christ are naturally not going to be able to be as full as they should be. And so John reads them, and he says, I have things to say that they were not able to say, and he is going to help supplement those things. We can see this in a number of different ways throughout the gospel. So if you look in verse, chapter 2, verse 3, we have an interesting introduction to somebody. Jesus was invited to this wedding in Cana, and they ran out of wine. When he, John in chapter 2, verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, all in all, that's not terribly interesting, right? Because we know Jesus had a mom. But if you are reading the Gospel of John on your own, it isn't actually terribly clear that Jesus would have had a mom. Because all we know of his coming down and being incarnated is what is written in 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It doesn't say how the word became flesh. And all of a sudden he just drops in that Jesus has a mom like you are supposed to know who that woman is. There's no indication that you should. 
chapter 3, verse 24, John mentions very casually that this was before John the Baptist got put in prison, as though you were supposed to know that John the Baptist got put in prison, which isn't available anywhere in the Gospel of John unless, of course, you had read the other Gospels. Then it makes perfectly good sense. In chapter 8, verses 39 through 41, Jesus is having a tussle with the Jews of the day, and especially about who their father is. They answered him in verse 39, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. By the way, genealogically, they are Abraham's children. This is Jesus' point. You would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father your father did. You are doing the works your father did. Now, the natural response to that is, we don't know what you're talking about. Abraham is our father. We can go down to the genealogical records, we can unroll that scroll, and we can show you that our father gets traced back to Abraham. I don't know what you're talking about. The natural response is to prove that Abraham is their father, or, or to, to ask for clarification, but instead they say this. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Things escalated quickly there. Right? Why does that matter? Well, in the Gospel of John, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But once you understand what happened in the virgin birth, that Mary and Joseph were betrothed to one another, but Jesus came around and that just kind of made everything a little messy for them and it appeared as though something uncouth happened, then it makes sense. They're taking a shot at Jesus. You only really get that if you understand what happened in the other Gospels. The most interesting one is in chapter 11, verse 2. And in chapter 11, verse 2, we are told that Mary, Lazarus is ill. Mary and Martha are his sisters. He is ill. He is going to die. This is the raising of Lazarus. And in verse 2, we have this incredibly interesting introduction to Mary. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Oh, so that, that's giving us who she is by telling us something she did. We should have known that story from somewhere. Well, where do we hear that in the Gospel of John? That story is introduced in chapter 11, but heard of in chapter 12. Like, that makes no sense. Why would you introduce a woman by an action that doesn't occur for another chapter? The same action does actually happen in the book of Luke, chapter 7, where Mary is not named. And so he is doing two things. One, he's identifying the woman as Mary and reminding you from the book of Luke that that is actually what happened. Now, there's a whole bunch of other things that point this out. But it's clear that John thinks that you have read the other Gospels. He assumes that you've read the other Gospels. And he's trying to help you understand them. So, for instance, when we come to the temple... Part of the problem with the dating of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are by liberal scholars who say, well, you can't know what's going to happen before it happens. And so when Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus proclaiming that the temple is going to be destroyed, that happens in AD 70. They say, well, it's got to happen after AD 70. John, ironically, the only gospel we know must have been written late, doesn't include the prophecy that the temple will fall. He does include the prophecy, but John doesn't interpret it like it's the actual temple. John interprets it like it's Jesus' body that he will then raise up again on the third day. Many times, a lot of the things that the, the synoptics, the other three, talk about, John takes and changes and morphs. For instance, we talked about how there are no exorcisms. Jesus doesn't go around throwing out demons, casting out demons. That's not 
technically true. There's one demon that he casts out, and it's over the entirety of the gospel. The whole ministry of Jesus is pointed at casting out one demon, Satan himself. So in 1231, we have this. Now, the ju- this is, again, 1231, we are now closing in on the last days of Jesus. Already in the Gospel of John, we're really, really close to it. This is the last week. Now the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In chapter 13, very next chapter, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And even later then, in that same chapter in verse 27, after he had taken the morsel, John is laying on Jesus, and they're sitting around the table, and John says, well, who's going to betray you? And he says, the one I give this morsel to. So after taking the morsel, Satan entered into him, that is, into Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. In chapter 14, verse 30, these are some of the last words that Jesus says to his disciples. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Chapter 16, verses 9 through 11. And when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Even in John 8, that famous passage that we just read from, where they're talking about the Father, the Father of the Jews is Satan. It's not really them that's running the show. It's Satan who stands behind them. The Gospel of John is very much pointed at one exorcism, Jesus removing Satan from his rulership over the world. This is not something that you get in the synoptics. That's not the picture we get in the synoptics. So John is taking them and he is supplementing them. He is aiding your understanding of it. And this is seen even in the first six words of the Gospel of John. Not only does it sound different, but he is helping us to understand what is going on. So when we read in the beginning, we automatically think of Genesis. But take the poor bloke who wasn't given because the Gideons didn't include it in there, the Old Testament, which is a shame. It's really bad. We need to include the Old Testament with stuff. But let's say they didn't have it. When they heard in the beginning, their first thought wouldn't be to Genesis, but it would be to the Gospel of Mark, who writes the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And where does Mark note that beginning happen? It happens with the preaching of John the Baptist and the baptizing that he did. Matthew does him one better and says, actually, no, the beginning of it goes all the way back to Abraham as Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. Luke says, I'll do you one better. It actually goes back further than that. It goes back to Adam. And John says, you all have pinpointed something, but you're missing a bigger picture. And that is, it doesn't go back to the beginning of Adam. It goes back before the beginning. He is deepening and widening everything that the synoptics have done. He is showing, if you will, the reality behind the reality. And it's not to mean that the synoptics are inherently shallow and John is deep. It doesn't mean that they care about history and John doesn't care about history. Or, conversely, that they don't care about theology and John cares about theology. None of that is true. But John wants to show us a bigger, deeper picture of who Jesus is and not just relate to us stories of what's going on. So this brings up Question number two, what direction does John take? Given that he is trying to make a different and provide a different and supplemental picture of who Jesus is, what direction does he take? And again, we see this in the very first verse. In the beginning was the word. Not meaning that in the beginning, when the beginning began, the beginning of the beginning, when that happened, that was when the word began too. That's not what John's saying here. He says, when the beginning began, already present was the word. 
The word was before the beginning. In the beginning, there was the word. The word wasn't created in the beginning, but in the beginning, when it began, the word was already there. He is a pre-existent word. This is why John is going to make so much in verses 3 and then further down about creation. Nothing was made without this. Anything that was made was made by the word. The word wasn't created. The word was always. There was not a time, in the words of Athanasius, tweaking them some, when the word was not. The word always has been. It is eternal. But this word does not stop there. John goes on to say this word was with God. This word was with God. This implies something of a relationship. right? If my wife calls me up and says, what are you doing? And I say, I'm with Doug. She automatically assumes that I am with the person we lovingly call the other Doug, Doug Brubaker. She doesn't think that I'm talking about myself because no one talks about being with themselves. With is a term of relationship, okay? You're always with yourself because you are yourself, right? So the the idea of saying that you're with somebody implies something of a relationship. It's not self-identity. It can be location. I can be with you here in this room, but it can also imply something metaphorical. Like when I say, are you guys still tracking with me? And you can say, yes, we're with you. That means that you are aligning with me. Your thoughts are following mine. It makes sense. You are with me. But it means that there's a relationship there. So there is something of a distinction between this word and God. They are not the same thing. And then the very next statement he makes is that they, they are the same thing. The word was with God and the word was God. This is where a lot of folks, including Jehovah's Witnesses, get into a lot of trouble. You will notice that the ESV rightly leaves any article, either definite or indefinite, off of that. He doesn't say, and the word was the God, because John doesn't want to say that. They also don't say the word was a God, because it doesn't ever, in the theology of John, seem like any biblical writer would ever talk about many gods and this one thing, true being, being one of those gods. There is only one God. It's neither definite nor it's indefinite. We don't need to get into all the details of Greek, but what it probably is is simply qualitative. And all it means is this, that the word, whatever defines it, whatever its essence is, whatever its nature is, is the same nature as that of God. All of the qualities of God the word has. All the characteristics of God, the word has. All of the nature of God, the word has. Whatever makes God, God, the word has that. Whatever you want to say, this is what God is, and you want to pull that from scripture, John is saying that is what the word is. Now, when we talk about God and the word this way, it can get pretty confusing because we're not sure if we should just talk about God as the Father or is then Jesus not God. And so John very clearly later is going to switch terminology to make very, very easy for us the distinction between God and the word. That happens in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. And so this is the language that we are accustomed to. The Son is always with the Father. He is always in a relationship with the Father. He is communicating with the Father. He knows the Father. The Father knows him. But everything that makes God, God, every single quality belongs to the Son. This is what Trinitarians call both essence, 
There's a whole bunch of words that go around that. There's a whole bunch of words that go around that. Essence and personhood. Essence means that the son in his very essence, the thing that makes him the son is God. He's not part of God. He's not a secondary God. He is God from eternity past. Everything that God is, is the son. But yet he is a distinct person. He relates to the father. The father and the son are not identical to one another. Eminent Greek scholar Dan Wallace says this, In other words, Jesus shared the essence of the Father, though they differed in person. The construction the evangelist chose to express this idea was the most concise way he could have stated that the Word was God and yet was distinct from the Father. This is an absolutely beautiful statement. There is no more concise way that you could say that Jesus Christ was with God and distinct from the Father and yet held everything in common with him. It is the beginning of the Trinity. So when we read the title throughout the book of John of the Son of God, it doesn't sound to us like it sounds in the Synoptics. In the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that title means more like he was the prophesied Messiah. But in the book of John, it means he is the second person of the Trinity. He is God from on high. And there is no doubt in the Gospel of John that that is one of the major points that he is trying to make. Jesus is God. He has the rights and the privileges of God. Throughout the remainder of the book, that's almost all you read about. Every bit of of trouble that he gets into is almost always over this. It's not really just about the Sabbath, but what he says about the Sabbath. So in chapter 5, verses 18 and 23, After breaking the Sabbath by healing a man and telling him to walk with his mat, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, bad enough, right? But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 22, For the Father judges no one, Jesus says, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Like, Jesus, you're not helping your own cause. They, they say, you're making yourself equal with God. And he says, I know, you're supposed to give me just as much honor as you give the Father. It is about the deity of Christ. Again, chapter 8, that incredibly pivotal chapter, pivotal chapter. Jesus, at the end, when he has said that he has seen Abraham, and they, they're, they're flabbergasted by this, they say, you're 50 years old, you're not even 50, you've seen Abraham? And he says, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Those I am statements, I am the bread, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the vine, are all referenced back to Exodus 3.14 when Moses asks, who am I supposed to tell the Jews sent me? What God sent me? And God replies, I am who I am. Jesus is not trying to hide the fact that he is God. He is not trying to hide the fact that he is doing the work of God, but that he is literally God in the flesh. John tells us repeatedly and has Jesus claim repeatedly that Jesus is not just some sort of good man selected by God for a really difficult task because God knew that he was a good man, but rather that he is God incarnate. Now, another question that comes from this passage is why, if the son language becomes so important, 
does John start out his gospel not by talking about the fact that he is son, which we would affirm he was always the son. There was never a time when the son was not, and more importantly, there was never a time when the son was not the son, but he calls him the word at the beginning, a, a title that John just frankly drops. After verse 14, Jesus isn't called the word anymore. It's always the son. Why start with the word? Greek had a whole bunch of reasons to call things the word. The Stoics thought it was sort of the rational principle that built up everything in the world. And Plato thought that the logos, which is what the word means, is simply the, the reality that's true and ideal behind everything. There were other things as well. But frankly, it's probably just the Old Testament word of God. He's going to talk about creation here. As God spoke the word, the creation came into existence. What John is telling us is what the book of Hebrews introduces us to, that when God reveals himself, he always reveals himself as the Son. Listen, God is so unique and different from us that he must reveal himself to us. If we are to know anything about him, he's got to show us who he is. So I can find out about you by Googling you, okay? And I can walk around and listen to you and, and see how you interact and read your Facebook posts and listen to how you talk to people at McDonald's and how you talk to people in the grocery store, how you talk to your wife and how you talk to your kids. And I can build up a pretty good picture of who you are. You can't do that with God. There is no way for you to find out about God. There is no way for you to get at the person of who God is unless God speaks and reveals himself to you. So God is saying whenever he reveals himself to us, he is always revealing himself to us through the word, which is the Son. And that brings us to the third question. What destination does John necessitate? Where are we going? Why make such a big deal about Jesus being God? And why make such a big deal over the way that this thing is worded? Because it's worded carefully, friends. John, I'm guaranteeing you, in his human nature, spent much time sweating over this first verse and how he was going to pen it. It is simply this. The gospel, in and of itself, and we can frame it and we can make it into many, many things, but John is pleading with you to understand this. The gospel is nothing less than the revelation of the Trinity. That's what it is. It is, the gospel is good news that Jesus died for your sins, that if you trust in him and believe in him, you can have eternal life. John's going to get there. He gets there right away. In this very first opening sort of salvo here, he's going to pinpoint the fact that if you believe in him, you can have eternal life and you can become children of God. That is amen and good, and that is right. That is what the gospel is. But John's saying something more than that. He's saying, if you really want to understand what the gospel is, the gospel is nothing more than the revelation that God is who he is. So, the gospel is the Trinity. The Trinity is the gospel. The two are the same, in a sense. Fred Sanders, who is a Trinitarian scholar, wrote this. The Trinity and the gospel are not just bundled together so that you can't have one without the other. What he means by that is, it's not like there's a strand of thinking that is the Trinity and an understanding that you have to have and another strand for the gospel. And God in his infinite wisdom has simply tied the two together in such a way that you can't get that knot out. Okay? 
frankly, this is the way that vast majority of us think about the gospel. The gospel is the club we get into. The password to get in is the confession of the Trinity. And you can't be in the club unless you confess the Trinity. But once you get in the club, the Trinity doesn't really matter anymore. But if you deny it, then the bouncer comes and he kicks you out of the club. That's what we typically conceive of. This is why the Trinity doesn't mean anything to almost anybody. Because it's the gospel, it's the gospel, it's the gospel. Listen, John is saying that if you're going to truly understand, listen, he starts his gospel out this way. If you want to know what the gospel truly is, you have to understand who Jesus truly is. And that means understanding who God is. The gospel is God revealing himself to the world. If God is merciful, how do we know God is merciful? How does God demonstrate and show and prove to us that he is merciful? How does he reveal his mercy to us? He can only do it through Christ. He can only do it through being merciful. If he is loving and just and wrathful and kind and angry and gracious, how does he show us any of those things? He can show us bits and pieces here, but to show us the full demonstration of who he is, he must send his son. It is only because Jesus Christ is God incarnate that we can have our redemption. Because it is only the incarnate God who can truly show us who God is. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us, which is an incredibly bold thing to say. Show us God, and that's good. Like, we're not going to have no sandwiches, no, no, no miracles. Just show us God. That's enough. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but my Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In other words, how do we see God? How do we know who God is? Jesus shows him to us. How do we know that God is a faithful God? Jesus shows us that. The very actions and the whole work of the cross and the resurrection is nothing but a demonstration of the character and the faithfulness of God. If you want to know the meaning of the cross, you have to understand who God is. And a failure to do that and a failure to preach that. Hmm. It is a failure to understand the very purpose and the reason for John's gospel. Only the Son can give a full depiction of who God is. The Son demonstrates who the Father is, and in that demonstration, we find our salvation. It is in the demonstration of the faithfulness of God, in the justice of God, in the love of God, through the work of the Son, by the sending of the Father, and the inspiration of the Spirit in our hearts, remaking us to see that it is only through the work of the Trinity and the revelation of the Trinity that we can ever be saved. The early church realized this. That is why they made a huge deal out of the Trinity. They didn't do that because the password meant a lot. They did that because they knew that losing the Trinity was the loss of the gospel. And any loss of gospel is a loss of Trinity. You can't have one without the other. Is my prayer 
that in the weeks and the months ahead as we study through the book of John, that we might grow in knowledge and appreciation of the Trinity's gospel. That we might understand better, not simply by me telling you, but by reading the stories and seeing how John portrays this, about seeing how we handle baptism and seeing how we handle issues of salvation, that in all of this, what is being revealed to us is not just our salvation, but the very nature of God on high. That we might be able to stand and sing that doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him, all you heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And realize that what we are doing is we are proclaiming our salvation. And we are proclaiming the goodness of our God who saves us from hell. Let us pray. God, you are an amazing God. And we do well to think about who you are. And while none of us can plumb the depths of that, and no amount of words, no amount of thoughts will ever trace out the infinite depth of who you are. For only your infinite spirit can do that. We pray, Father, not that we might know you fully, but we pray that we might know you truly and to grow ever deeper in our appreciation of what you are, of who you are, of how you are, and of how you have revealed yourself to us through your Son. We thank you, Father, for your word, for it is life to us. May you open our eyes and our ears to hear what you say to us. We ask for this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.